Dr. Kuntz, Cold War paratrooper writes in and he asks this. Uh, I have an inside baseball question. <laughs> Outstanding username, by the way. Uh. <laughs> he says, I have an inside baseball question for the LCMS concerning episode 100, Halloween all the time. It coalesced my thoughts about how now the open satanic big S assault here is in the West. Dr. Kleinick observes, if my memory serves correctly in his book, Grace Upon Grace, that as the gospel recedes in society, the demon demonic becomes more overt. Reverend Dr. Robert Bennett said in his book, I'm Not Afraid, uh, he discusses that in his study of Mad Madagascar Lutheran Church's gospel ministry, they employ exorcists to assist the clergy in ministering to Christians suffering from demonic oppression. My question is twofold. One, is the growing and overt spiritual warfare on the radar of our, is this growing and overt spiritual warfare on the radar of our seminaries, the presidium and districts? Or is it still considered something that polite company does not discuss because it offends modern sensibilities? And two, what is the LCMS, both at the seminaries and in the field, doing to equip our clergy to minister to the laity as the principalities, powers, cosmic powers, and the present darkness grow in their overt attack against society and the church? And I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Okay. Oh, he, he does include yeah. a link to a death cult video of a woman setting up an altar for post-abortion worship. Pretty gross, actually. Yeah. I think that some of the books he references are definitely on the radar of the LCMS. And as far as I know, the seminaries, I would say that I think the LCMS is probably currently thinking about this in a way that is too literal. That is, they're looking for manifestations similar to what Bennett chronicles in Madagascar. And I think that the difficulty there is that historical experience and a people's religious experience do affect the appearance of the demonic. And so in Madagascar, you're going from at the time of our civil war, not that long ago, that is a couple of generations, you have open and rampant paganism, you have some historic influences from Islam, from East Africa. And then as of 1860s, 70s, 80s, you have missionaries, largely Roman Catholic, but also Norwegian Lutheran missionaries. The United States is a different kind of a place because we have both a vastly different history, but also because we have specifically a different religious history. That is, secularization is not the same thing as paganism, strictly speaking, or historically manifested. And we can see, and we and we, we have talked about on this show, it's pro we're probably the only Lutheran pastors that have explained, for instance, in the case of the Pacific Northwest, how a place that is least Christianized in the American population slides into explicit paganism. But there are, in most cases, many stages between secularization and explicit paganism. And there are, in most cases, therefore, generations. And in many places, you're still in this spot. Probably in many families, you're still in the spot where people apparently believe nothing. So, that's why I, I think that our response to it has been a little, and this is this is kind of a common fault in Lutherans, is a little lacking in attention to the specifics on the ground in the United States. 
somewhat in the same way that we appropriated ways of having, of being the church and of operating rather directly from Europe. So this was the model for how pastors could stop their sermon and call someone out very directly by name and sermons, which the early LCMS therefore had to say, oh, that's a bad idea because in America, they don't have to listen to you because <laughs> they could move. And they don't have to live here. And you're not a member of the aristocracy anymore, Mr. College-educated guy. Nobody cares. Um, so you can't behave the way that you did in Germany. In a similar way, I think we've taken manifestations of the demonic that appear in a society that is largely and historically and relatively recently openly pagan, and then said, oh, well, let's look for this here. So there is on the radar, for example, exorcisms, or there is on the radar this or that or the other thing but it's generally taken directly from other countries' experiences with the demonic. I don't think that that means that demons are completely different everywhere or that the right of exorcism cannot be used in other countries. I'm saying it has a different manifestation in a country where what Satan likes to do is to hide his existence. That's something that will therefore manifest differently than a country in which he doesn't bother to hide at all. So that's that I think is not on the radar. And it is why there are things that are obviously demonic, such as people being ripped away from the faith with regularity and predictability and generally winning the majority of our children of any Christian denomination. But we don't really address these things as terribly serious, or we we act like they are natural, like it's natural at a certain point in your life not to be a Christian, and then you'll come back to the Christian faith when you have children or whatever, that these things, it, it, would, and it, it would be almost histrionic, I think, to say that that's demonic in the same way that you would say, you know, the kinds of possession that you see in the gospels are demonic. It's not exactly possession. It's more like distraction or confusion or blurring. And uh, what you need to bring is not, not just an exorcism, but clarity or healing or light. So I find that Americans, when they are not Christians, behave more like Pharisees than like Canaanites, is what I'm saying. Their, their, their paganism is much less open Satan doesn't want to show himself as such. That is changing. All of these things exist on a continuum with each other. All darkness is some shade of darkness. But I'm saying that the shade that we commonly have here is not quite the same as in other countries. And I, I want the listeners to be attentive to that. I'm not really sure that our church body is because we usually don't talk about things that people that study religion professionally talk about, such as secularization and how that manifests in just a historical way. You know, how do people, you know, stop believing or they never quite believed or, you know, these kinds of questions are generally not on our religious radar. We're usually either talking about explicit Christianity and so what's wrong with the Baptists or this is why we do the liturgy this way, or we're talking about explicit, open and ritualized paganism. And there are both those things in the United States, but the vast majority of people are in neither of those places. They're neither explicitly Christian, nor are they openly, ritually, or even secretly 
pagan in some kind of religiously observable way. They are instead secularized, and that is marked by a variety of things that scholars who talk about secularization notice all the time, like devotion to sports teams will always be greater in a secularized society than it was, for instance, in 19th century Britain, when Britain was much more religious. But secularization also has holdovers from Christianity. So sometimes at British soccer games, people will sing hymns. They don't particularly believe any of it, or they don't know its original context or what it means. But it is traditional from the 19th century when soccer was invented and Britain was a much more Christian place. So it sounds like the what you're saying is that we like the fanciful, or perhaps the fantastic is a better word. We like the fantastic. We think, oh, demons, the you know, exorcism. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone's head spinning around. Someone in a dark alley with with a tail. And what you're <laughs> that's right. Yeah. What, what you're suggesting is that we it's all around us. We don't see it because what it is is hiding. And that the moment you can acknowledge that the person who says I don't believe in anything, well, that person is oppressed. Uh, they are they are following demonic religion. Uh, mm -hmm. They are, uh, they are, uh, what's the propagating, uh, chasing, uh, trying to promote uh, yeah. the devil's own lie. Yeah. And so secularism is a, a worship of demons that says, we don't worship demons. Of course we don't worship demons. There aren't any demons, but that's, yeah. that's the worship of demons. Yeah. And because it manifests differently, it has to be approached differently. So this is easy to recognize in American history because you have several different initial religious cultures. So Germans, for example, will propagate both actual open practice of witchcraft and alongside it, a, for America, a relatively ritualistic religion like Lutheranism. And the German Reformed are compared to other Reformed, the most liturgical or ritualistic. You don't have that many Catholics, and the Catholics that you do have are initially maybe English in Maryland and England, the thing that's significant and easy to compare with the Germans, England actually has relatively little interest in witches compared to Germany. The Salem witchcraft trials are notable for their mildness compared to Germany, but no one knows or remembers that, of course, that when English religious culture goes awry, it often goes immediately into secularism or immediately into something that is anti-churchly, even if it's perhaps Christian. So this is how you get, I mean, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, is in roughly at least the second, maybe depending on the, the biography you read, maybe the third generation of not attending church regularly. That's in America in the early 1800s. So these religious cultures have their own problems, and then obviously they mix together and change and stuff like that. But whereas you could find somebody in, you know, the mountains of Pennsylvania openly trying to practice witchcraft at the time Joseph Smith was born in Vermont, you wouldn't find that in Vermont. You wouldn't find instead somebody like Ethan Allen, sort of the founding father of Vermont, saying that he despised all churches and sects and was devoted to the pursuit of reason. Not really a danger to which Germans were prone at the time in America. So when you have different religious cultures, you really have to, it's sort of like saying, you know, this is how you catch this fish but you go to this different climate with these different waters and this different fish, and you have to catch it in a different way. So I think we have to be attentive to, especially how secularization operates also in our own families, because this is how 
people are ripped away from Christ in America. It is not usually or generally or predominantly through some explicit alternate ritual and explicit set of dogmas. So I find it interesting that if I were to suggest to to anyone, I think, um, that uh, the phone in your hand, which isn't a phone, the, the supercomputer in your hand that is like the TV on steroids, that it is, in fact, a demonic scrying portal developed by the devil himself to brainwash you into being addicted to it so that you gradually go mad over time. Most people would be angry that I said that. They say, that's stupid. You can't such, why, why would you think such a thing as that? Of course, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And I find yeah. that response to be the most affirming <laughs> piece of my concern is like, instead of, instead of thinking, huh, wow, that, that would be scary. Instead, it's immediate self-justification of the act. And I'm not saying that texting your mom on Sunday afternoon means you're like in bed with the devil, but uh, the slope seems to be slippery to me. I think you you also state things in intense ways, mm. and one of the marks of our culture, religiously but also irreligiously, is a devotion to mildness or space or calm that doesn't want intensity, except on pre-selected areas. So it's fine to be judgmental about this, but generally it's not fine to be judgmental. So if someone says something that sounds, quote, homophobic, again, remember that implies that you are physically frightened of homosexuals, homophobic, then that's not okay. And you can kind of jump all over that but you can't jump all over most things that people say. So especially if you're saying something intense about something that basically everybody has or does, and then what it's leading to, that's, <laughs> you know, that's the very thing that is, that is off limits. And I, I, I think, I think about things like that all the time because if you go to different parts of the country, you will find that people are more or less open about talking about various things. One thing that I appreciate about the Northeast is people's generally greater openness to open discussion of things. But even there, if you implied that this is just, this is wrong, people are unaccustomed to actually handling dogmatic assertions. Yeah whether they're right or wrong. So they just don't even know what to do. They could get angry, but I think in addition to their anger or even without anger, they would simply be confused that you were asserting something about a problem at all, like that you would state it in that way. And you can notice this in the in the habits of Americans. Listen to how often they say kind of or sort of or make a statement sound like a question and they're doing that to to soften what it is that they're saying at every point in, in almost every realm. So there are some things that are exceptions to that, but I think that one of the things in this, I think also has to do with what is important about the manifestation of the demonic in America, which is its addiction to secrecy. Now, Satan is always addicted to secrecy, right? Men would not come to the light that their works not be exposed, but this particular addiction to secrecy or making everything private allows Satan to operate because then you never have to, 
you sort of never, you're never going to open the windows. You're never going to air anything out because if you assert that, and I actually have to sit there and think about it, then maybe it could expose something about my life. But if I don't have to think about it because you said it in a certain way, then whatever's going on in my life can just keep going on. One of the things, and I think that was really insightful. One of the things that um, I find interesting again about, about the same scenario is that the immediate knee jerk is that I've said that it's quote unquote wrong when mm-hmm. all I'm suggesting is that it's maybe dangerous, right? And, yeah. and there, to me, that's a, maybe that's just a nuance, but I think it's a really, really important nuance. Um, I, the fact that whether, whether these things are demonic from the ground up or, mm-hmm. or whether they are simply hijacked by the demonic or perhaps allowed by the demonic because they can so yeah. easily be hijacked by the demonic, specifically by isolating you, by putting you in a place where you don't have to share what you're doing, and then where you want to defend that so-called independence to to what, again, um, to, to allow self-deception, um, to avoid confrontation and accountability, uh, to be able to at all times be gluttonous and, and filled with sloth. Um, what, what, is the, what is the positive, the net positive here again? You know, why can't we use these things for good? Okay, well, you you do YouTube, Jonathan. Uh, it's used for good. Well, you know, yeah, you're right. I do. Is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that some individuals have yeah. had benefit from this. So, you know, people are listening to the podcast right now. Well, what's what's the net return here, right? Um, and and I'm not sure the net return is is good. Um, and certainly the, the church and Christianity needs to swim in, in whatever culture we've been plopped down in the middle of it. And, and I don't expect you, you know, to, to give up your, uh, your text messaging to your mom on Sunday afternoons before you become a Christian or anything like that. But again, if, if I were an alien species of super high intelligence and technology and I wanted to conquer earth, I think I would invent something that would get everyone to stare at it until they became brain dead rather than try to attack them head on. <laughs> and again, I, I, I yeah, don't know. Right. I mean, right, look, look right. around everybody. Have you, have you watched, have you put yours down long enough to look? And again, if you're mad that I suggested you should put it down and look to me, that's like, it shows you just how deep you are. You know? Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that the quiet subversion or patient subversion is always more effective, whether you're speaking of men or demons, than a head-on attack. So if, you know, if if you're in whatever, some country in East Africa and they're killing albinos, you know, you don't, <laughs> and they're, or, you know, they're, they're convinced that the albino is magical and they need to chop him up and use his parts, then it doesn't, you, you, you don't need to subvert that society. It's already been driven to open madness. If you have a society that's ostensibly driven to, you know, ostensibly controlled by reasonable discussion or open political processes or favoring what benefits the common man as, you know, land policy in the United States had until relatively recently, people moved to California because it was so cheap. You could have a nice life cheaply. That was the whole point. Then uh, a head-on attack saying, no, uh, reasonable discussion is horrible. No, uh, people owning their own things is horrible. Is They're not going to listen to that. So quiet subversion, I think, has been much more effective for the West 
because it allows you to feel like you are being a reasonable person and saying, well, shouldn't kids be able to decide what gender they want to be? You know, isn't that, and it's because it's presented as a reasonable medical decision. This is healthcare to keep kids from committing suicide. So it's that quiet subversion that I think is much more effective and important. It's nonetheless demonic, but that is how it manifests itself among us most often. Much less often is it explicit ritual or practice of magic or something like that. Although that is certainly coming back as it's as coming back. Noted, yeah, but no it, question. It is, it is making its inroads and not without a, uh, a strong um, use of technology in many instances as well, not to tie them together, but to see that um, there is a, there is a tendency of the mad to get madder still. And they're going to use the tools that yeah. will, that will drive them in that direction uh, with all abandon. So, you know, I, I think this is a fair transition here that, you know, speaking of madness, splitting the atom, I mean, that that's a, that's a crazy <laughs> idea. I mean, I'm still kind of willing to question whether the atom actually exists as we, as we claim it does. Uh, sometimes I wonder, and this is in my, my fantasy fiction writing, writing moments, but, but I wonder if in fact, we're not dealing with demons and spirits and what we're doing is shooting little demons at each other and blowing them up and we just don't know it. Um, I think that's kind of fun to imagine, but yeah. it's probably not where most people are ready to just jump right away. They just want to know about how we led up to the bomb that solved, quote unquote, World War II. <laughs> yeah, solved is the operative and questionable verb. It is notable that once two German research scientists, Frisch and Strathman, split the atom successfully in the 1930s. Those reports are, once it is learned in, at, at various rates by various parties, some of them being Jewish scientists or leftist non-Jewish scientists leaving Germany as National Socialism comes to power in 1933. They are bringing news that is rumored throughout the physics world that the Germans know how to split the atom. And what that means is that they can init initiate fission that releases energy that is enormously therefore capable. Now, before roughly 1938, that research is directed, especially in Germany, in a variety of ways. It's mainly directed toward energy production. What we now think of as nuclear energy what the Germans are still somewhat reluctant, even California is reluctant, entirely to shut down. There was a question earlier this year whether California would close the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, and they just really, not even Gavin Newsom can justify it right now because of its immense productivity. That was probably the original or the primary reason for research in the mid-1930s, wherever knowledge of these things was obtained, of course, it had to, this breakthrough, as it were, had to be repeated in various places, because by 37, 38, 39, Germany is only sharing its nuclear secrets, such as it is, research secrets, roughly with Japan. The Italians have no specific effort in this direction. The reason we've started with Germans in the last episode, Will in this episode, and, and Will in the next episode on air power, 
is partly because of their importance, Otto Warburg with the metabolic theory of cancer, Frisch and Strathman with the splitting the atom, but it's also to give you a way of comparing what happened with them to what we did. Because the really important nations in World War II will prove to be the United States and the Soviet Union, the two respective victors over Germany, uh, even together victors over Japan. The Soviets invade at the very end of the war, some Japanese islands. So what happens with both of those powers is very different from what happens with the Germans. The Germans get the initial breakthrough. They do not, however, unlike with what we discussed with Warburg, have the same backing from the Third Reich for their research, strictly speaking. The Third Reich is not invested in obtaining nuclear weaponry to anything like the same degree that the United States is for reasons that we'll make clear as the hour goes on. The Germans therefore have a variety of different institutes, research centers, pursuing different things, mostly in the direction of nuclear power rather than nuclear weaponry. There is a pursuit of weaponry. I'm not saying nobody wanted that. I'm saying that the same affinity that we noted last week between Now, does this have to do with the fact that they were so oil hungry? It has to do it has to do with their differing theory of what it is that they need to do. They do not believe that they need to end anything decisively in a way that will spare casualties because they don't perceive themselves as able to do that with the Russians. So there is not for instance the only book on this is by David Irving. It's a book called Virus House. You can find it free online as a PDF. It's the only book that I've found about the German nuclear weapons program. And what you find in there is that there is not a sense that they really have or would want to simply destroy the Soviet Union in one swift blow, such as we imagine as I'll explain in a second, even before the war, doing to any potential opponents in the next world war. And that's also partly because their dependence on oil is because of their dependence on tank warfare to win wars, which actually works in Western Europe. It doesn't work in Eastern Europe, but it does work in the West. And so investment in things. So it, Germany has the same problem that in the second world war that it had in the first which is it's landlocked and in the middle, or it's almost entirely landlocked and it's in the middle. It's sea locked, if you want to think of it that way, because they have to get out of the North Sea to get onto the high seas. So because of that, they need to obtain some means of getting out and oil gets them out. So as resources become fewer and fewer as the war goes on and they don't have the same kind of breakthrough that they had with like the discovery of ammonia or ammonia production of fertilizer in the First World War, they are going to shrink their research plans and they will invest in air power. I mean, innovative things in air power, innovatively destructive in a way that America invests heavily in nuclear weaponry. And... The other big difference is how much larger and resource rich 
and at peace our home front was. So Germany is both in a hard spot, and then as the spot gets harder and harder and harder as the war progresses, nuclear weapons research will simply not be that important. It just seems weird to me. I mean, the doomsday device is always what the Nazis are doing in the movies. <laughs> right. And I think that one of the biggest discrepancies between reading the history of Germany in the Second World War and seeing movies about Germany in the Second World War is that the Germans are not nearly as good at planning and coordinating things as everyone, at least in Hollywood, imagines them to be. They, they don't. There is constant rivalry. There are multiple competing research budgets for completely different ends that no one bothers to coordinate and say, this is if you want somebody that's actually good at getting things done in a management kind of way, I would make a movie about the Americans in the Second World War. <laughs> they set a goal and then obtain it. The Germans don't. The Germans are a little, I think, too dreamy. And they let, and I, I guess if you could imagine it from last week too, Otto Warburg goes on doing during the 30s and 40s precisely what he was doing in the 1920s. It, it's of no, no particular application directly or immediately, but he's doing what he wants to do and the state is funding it. So <laughs> the, the Germans are really not as good at coordinating things as people imagine. And one just little anecdotal thing to remember this by is that one of the biggest problems that Hitler has as a commander in chief is that he stays up really late reading and also sometimes talking to a, a close circle of friends. And at times he's not waking up before 10 a.m. I mean, this is a grown man in charge of a country at war and he is not able to get up reasonably early enough to make decisions that need to be made at, you know, 6.30 Berlin time. So this is, <laughs> this is a problem, but it's not the problem that you were prepared for by the movies, but it is in fact who the Germans were. So then Germany has the breakthrough though, in, and doesn't quite realize what they could do with it for yeah, the reasons that you've just been talking about. Not in a unified about. way. Yep. But word begins to trickle out through the grapevine of physics that this is possible. Right. And so others conceive of the idea and, and the race is on. Because sometimes I think people think that the Second World War began on September 1st, 1939, when Germany and the Soviet Union invaded Poland. Almost everything you need for a world war to occur between the relevant parties is already happening in military and scientific mobilization two to three years before that. Almost every country by the beginning of 1939 that will be a major party to the war has some kind of nuclear weapons research program going. Generally, these things are so secret that they don't mutually know about one another. So to give you an example of that, and this can get us into the Manhattan Project, is the British, and because of the existence of the British Commonwealth, also somewhat a Canadian project called Tube Alloys, which is their code name, which they use uniformly. There is nothing other about nothing else about the program besides something called Tube Alloys. Is their nuclear weapons research project. The discovery of the atom is made by a British scientist in 1932 
Frisch and Strathman are working on the basis of British breakthroughs just years prior to them. So the British were apparently out front on this, but by 38, they are behind and they know it. What they also learn about as 1939 progresses. Now, remember, America isn't in the war until the very last month of 1941. But as early as 1939, the men working on tube alloys learn that the Americans have begun something that they are calling the Manhattan Project. How do they learn of these things? Because when you sometimes hear, and you usually hear this, I'm sure you've heard it somewhere, if you've been following the news recently as we record this, Britain has both a new prime minister and a new monarch, is that America and Britain enjoy a special relationship. That relationship is extremely important in Quigley's framework. And I think Quigley underplays technology, which is why, for those of you actually following the timeline this year in Quigley at home, what I'm often doing, you may have noticed, is supplementing things that he says. I think he overplays the importance of finance and underplays the importance of technology. But the special relationship does matter for modern history because what you have that Quigley lays out decades before the Second World War is a growing conviction, especially in Britain, that if Britain is to have a future, if the English-speaking peoples understood as some sort of unitary thing are to have a future together, and that doesn't that doesn't really just to be totally explicit, that doesn't mean like Ghanaians. That means the English, the Americans, the Canadians, the South Africans, Australians, and New Zealanders. That's that's who that is. It doesn't mean India. So it's it's effectively white English-speaking countries. If they are to have a future, then they need to operate together. The British realize before the First World War that America simply has a much better future ahead of it because of its access to uh, to economic resources and its commercial success, probably than Britain does. So they need to work together. That's carefully cultivated over the decades before and after the First World War by people on both sides of the Atlantic. Before the Second World War, what is happening is that contacts, both British and Canadian, are talking to American physicists and there are men in both Britain, Canada, and the United States who are not British, Canadian, or American. They are, in fact, Hungarian or German or Austrian in citizenship. Men like Albert Einstein, Leo Gillard, a Lutheran pastor's son who will later turn out to be a communist named Klaus Fuchs. And these men in fleeing the Third Reich are also still talking to each other and doing physical research. So through both networks of physicists and political networks, the writer of the BFG, Roald Dahl, the English writer, is, for example, dispatched by British intelligence to find out whether the Americans are in favor of getting into the war in the 1930s. He's dispatched to Washington. He spends his wartime in America. So there are various ways of finding out, and the folks at Tube Alloys find out eventually that the Manhattan Project exists, and they say, why don't we work together? This is, I want to note this, more than two years before Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so effectively, by Christmas 1939, Britain is in a war with Germany. 
But America is not ostensibly in a war with anyone. But America is doing joint nuclear weapons research with the British and the Canadians who are in a war. So the idea that somehow we were going to stay out of the war based on things we've mentioned, and you can, you know, you can go read relatively recently, you know, the Pat Buchanan book, The Unnecessary War about World War II. And people say, oh, Americans were not in favor of getting into World War II. That's true, but I, I don't think that ever mattered. <laughs> the opinions of people in, you know, Dayton, Ohio just uh, don't matter. And I, I bring up Dayton because one of the things that's going to make America successful in its development of nuclear weaponry is its ability to coordinate its research centers. And the Manhattan Project is probably one of the best examples of this, perhaps the first on the scale that it exists, in that it is initiated by academics. In 1938, Leo Gillard and Albert Einstein, who are both emigre Jewish scientists from what will become the Third Reich, they write a letter to President Roosevelt pleading with him to formally develop a nuclear weapons research program because the Germans are developing their own. And Roosevelt will actually heed this pretty quickly and put in charge of the program a, an army general who will later become, I believe, an army air force general, Leslie Groves. So what you see already in 1938, so this is three years before we enter a war, is that we are developing nuclear weapons, potentially as well as nuclear energy production, in a way that unites politicians, the military, and academia. And that union, I mean, people say the military-industrial complex Originally, Eisenhower's speech said military-industrial-congressional complex. It, it really is a military-academic-industrial complex. There are defense contractors, but usually before there are defense contractors, there are academic research centers sponsored by the military to develop things. And that's really going to be the heart of the Manhattan Project. You'll have formal governmental centers, but before that and throughout that, and for the sake of that, you also have places like the University of Chicago, University of California, Berkeley, Columbia University, even my alma mater, Swarthmore College, which is very small, had a nuclear weapons research building, which is faces away from every other building on the campus because it was built to be high security during the Second World War. So these kinds of things will usually predate industrial production or defense contracting that especially scientific academia exists for the sake of and by virtue of the money of the government. So I want to kind of uh, harken back to something you said. I don't know if it yeah. was last episode or the episode before, but it, it's I think it's connected here. Like all of the stories that we tell, which is mostly movies, but not always, mm -hmm. um, imply that the reason we were able to come up with the bomb just in time to fix everything mm -hmm. is because we're so good. We're just so virtuous and true and really have, you know, the justice and right on our side, yeah. uh, our hearts in the right place. And you were suggesting it was more a matter of logistics. We just happen to have really good logistics. Mm -hmm. And that sounds similar here to the, the networking issue that now uh, that continues to be, I suppose, 
one of the reasons for, I mean, along with the dollar being kind of the default currency and the the new pact, but right. uh, what has made the U.S. able to be as successful as it as it has been across the last fifty years, hundred years, is our logistical capacity, which does involve the networking of our schools. Uh, you know, you see this in the Olympics with the way that we train athletes um, and things like that. Um, so. Just to kind of pull back to that again, yeah. to recognize that that's not a virtue. It's not because we were right. It's not because we had God on our side. Um, although some of you out there listening, you definitely have God on your side. Yeah, I, I think that that is that is also something that was debated during our civil war, but was generally recognized by people who knew what they were talking about, such as naval commanders watching ironclads get built much faster in the north or sherman watching our industrial capacity supply troops and materiel even all the way down in georgia and south carolina and the the confederates couldn't keep even basic supply chains going is that americans do not face on their own continent prior to the advent of intercontinental ballistic missiles they do not face this nearly the same kinds of threats that anyone else faces. There are, for instance, in the Second World War, examples of Americans dying on American soil as a result of foreign ordnance, unexploded Japanese weapons, as well as a Japanese bombing raid in Alaska. Besides that, however, I mean, even today, relative to the entire population, how many people live in Alaska? Besides that, we are secure. And that matters a lot because it enables a continent-wide research program to be undertaken by a country with a much larger population than Germany's to achieve a goal that is being centrally administered by an impregnably secure defense establishment. So all of that creates working conditions. And to be to be clear, we barely get there. We barely get there. The British are trying to do this before we are. The Germans are trying to do this before we are. The Japanese, in a small way, are trying to find the capacity to produce nuclear weapons about the same time. They start about the same time that we do. We have both many more resources. We have more people, and we have the capacity to test weapons even on our own continent without harming anyone, apparently, at least at first, because we can blow things up in New Mexico and Nevada and apparently affect nobody. So we have advantages that you can look at them as moral advantages if you want to. I'm sure cases can be made. I know cases have been made for each of them, but what you are looking at with the development of nuclear weaponry is a technological success story. And I think one thing that is unsettling about technology for people is what appears to be its, not its moral neutrality, but its amorality. These are tools. So it's like saying, well, you know, the Germans had better infantry rifles than we did or something, but we want in the war. Well, did they lose the war because they had better tools? No. So when when you're thinking about, I, I suppose, it, composing some kind of coherent moral narrative about history, 
I don't think the way to do that is to ignore technological factors and to say that because of something that no one was aware of or cared about at the time, or because of how Steven Spielberg portrayed it in retrospect, we won the war. I think that that's, it's just sort of silly and it, it causes you to ignore actual factors like in carrying the Einstein Gillard letter, Einstein and Gillard contacted a man named Alex Sachs, who is from the Goldman Sachs family who worked in the Roosevelt administration and important in, in here is remembering from the episode we did on the new deal coalition that American Jews found a very decisive political home in the Democratic Party, in the coalition specifically, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had put together, first in New York and then for national election to the presidency. So those kinds of human factors matter a lot more in this story than just, you know, American know-how or something, which existed, but... Wasn't necessary. I mean, I, it's not like there was an IQ test administered in 1938 and they were like, yep, the Americans are smarter than the Germans. N Notice that both in the cancer episode and in this one, I haven't ever said that the Americans discovered anything. <laughs> I mean, we didn't, we didn't, we, we figured out how to use things better. Or I think, especially in the case of the Manhattan Project, we figured out how to organize things better. That's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like, stereotypes about Germans, it's like, I'm not really sure that, th that that's borne out. But, you know, the idea of Yankee ingenuity is usually confined to like the solo inventor, you know, Samuel Morse figures out how to transmit lightning through the wires, Robert Fulton figures out how to make a steamboat, you know, but a lot of Yankee ingenuity to call all the way back to our episodes about the rise of the corporation and stuff like that consists in a in an, a demonstrated American capacity to think of management as an art worth studying and then to implement it such that I think, I mean, I can, we can talk about Oppenheimer and his communist brother. We can talk about lots of people in the Manhattan project. I think the real star of the show is general Leslie Groves, who is simply better at organizing people and efforts than the various physicist geniuses across the country or, you know, the things that they're getting up to, if that doesn't get coordinated, then I think we easily end up the same place the Germans did with a lot of brilliant insights and and nothing particularly to show for. That's really interesting. One of the, um, the effect that the story has, and, and I, whenever we talk about this, it's, it's to me as Captain America, it's the Captain America story. The effect that it has, the, the, we were just virtuously smart we mm -hmm. knew yeah. how to do it good. And so if there's the, the effect is like it solves my little fear that if there's ever really a problem, America's going to get it right. We're, we're going to figure it out together. It's, it's yeah. the white hat right. ride in savior, right. you know, cue thing a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I don't mind that. OK, but the suggestion that what it is, we were just better managed 
And so we took whatever resources any group would have. And we also had some very uh, fortune-esque things like uh, being on a continent far away from everything else, you know, with enough technology to have information travel at a speed to connect a network of, of scholars and all this kind of stuff. Like there's a lot of just, mm-hmm. wow, that was lucky, you know, that this there as well, full by randomness. Um, uh, but um, even the idea that we're like somehow better managed, I guess that still kind of fits in the like, well, at least we're virtuous in that way. But given the way that we've talked about management in the past on the show and the era of management and the, the problems of management for the diminishment of the human, um, it, it's like, are we the baddies? I mean, it's, it's, it's back to that a little bit here. Have we turned this story completely upside down? I'm not saying that it's bad that we won and stopped the Nazis. Please, that's not what I said. Um, but the, and I think this is a running theme here to assume that we did so cause we're so good, or even that our happenstance, uh, strengths thereby make us better and capable of being good in the future just cause, um, is, is a powerful drug first off as a story. Yeah. Um, but for that reason, what it is, is, is an, 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 uh, yeah, it's anesthetic, anesthetic, uh, an there we go. That's the word I'm looking for, um, for the soul. So that I'm able to continue kind of numbing myself to the very uh, realistic um, fears or dangers that my own society poses to to humanity, actually. I think it, it also plays into something that I think is strange or 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 perhaps exceptional, actually exceptional about America, which is the the detachment from place so many Americans exhibit along with therefore a definition of America according to its actions rather than according to its existence. So that a being American consists in being virtuously altruistic like Captain America, who is invented during the second world war as an kind of an anti-Hitler cartoon. And it, it's it that American doesn't consist in, you know, your knowledge of the flora and fauna of Rhode Island, where you're from, or, you know, Idaho or something that, that being American has no relationship to place. Therefore, anyone could be American, but also therefore Americans are just better people than other people because they are defined by these virtuous actions that they have undertaken rather than by being a place with a history like every other place in the world. So it's a strange thing because there are realizations that Americans will sometimes have when they are engaging in what appear to be virtuous actions. I think it's also why what I think is the generation most addicted to this myth of America as defined by being the greatest people ever or the greatest country ever, the boomers, were so disillusioned by Vietnam. Why would you feel alienated when you come home? Because the media is controlling your brain and because you thought that being you consisted in always being virtuous. That's, I mean, you're human. You're still from that place. You're still from Rhode Island or Idaho or whatever. And you were never entirely virtuous. I don't know why anyone thought that, but here's why everyone thought that. There's a really strange moment at the end of the Second World War in Europe because something to recall is that even if we've started developing nuclear weaponry bef- <laughs> years before we're in the war, we don't actually have a usable weapon. 
when we defeat the Germans in May of 1945. So in that time, there is a kind of interregnum where we're considering whether we're going to have to fight the Japanese island to island to island, including on their own islands, their home islands. And at the same time, the, the Trinity test is about to occur in the New Mexican desert. In that time, in Europe, George Patton, who is in command of a significant proportion of the American forces that are now occupying Germany, realizes that he says, we fought the wrong people. That is, he's convinced that communism is going to be worse for the world than the Third Reich was. So we have stopped because these people are now our allies. That's also a the whole history of that is is a new thing, and we can maybe go into it next week, America and the Soviet Union. But his conviction is, is that we've stopped fighting in Europe, and we should have just kept fighting. That having defeated the Germans, we now need to defeat the Soviets. So none of that is actually solved by nuclear weaponry, because we don't have a usable weapon deliverable via air power until the early summer of 1945. That's why the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki don't take place until August 1945. So that time delay is due to the fact that we, I mean, we almost didn't make it to nuclear success, if you will. And we didn't because the actual drama of the war is not some sort of shining moral drama where the Americans are always better. I would say the Americans are generally better than, say, the Soviets in their treatment of the German civilian population. I would there's say a, that's yeah, true. I mean, there's, there's, but, a, there's a Protestant-infused love of virtue that, that is played on through all of this. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's when we start thinking that I'm not, uh, I'm not good because I do good. I'm good because I'm an American. And so <laughs> because I'm an American, I'm going to do good. And that's always true. So whatever I've done, that's is what good. good is. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and I just didn't that get the chance tweak, to do enough good. Yeah. That tweak mm -hmm. is where it gets very religious. And the idea that to be an American is not to be from a place, but to have a certain virtue-driven identity, again, is, is very religious uh, in its yes. approach. Yeah. Right. And I think it, it, it is why, if you want to use the term civil religion— it is why the civil religion of the United States has the tenor that it does. And a lot of this is really very much determined by our victory in the Second World War. So I'll just give you an example of how this changes over time. The Pledge of Allegiance, for example, is originally a tool put into public schools, propagated out of this magazine called The Youth's Companion, starting in the 1890s. And the reason it starts in the 1890s is because native-born Americans who are at that time really, this term doesn't really exist that many places, but I'm just going to popularize it because I think it's helpful historically. Old stock Americans, people who were here generally by the time of the revolution, certainly by the time of the civil war, they're going to be largely English, some Dutch, some German, some a little bit of French. Old stock Americans are very, very concerned at all the immigration that has happened in the 25 years since the Civil War. There's all kinds of backlash against that, it takes various forms. One of the forms of trying to 
do something about that is conscious projects of what they call Americanization, including a Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America every morning in public schools. That's the point of that. That is not an assertion about how America is great. It's an assertion that, and if you look at the original pledge, so not the words that you might have learned in public school, the original pledge, it says like my flag. And then there's an intermediate version that says the flag of our country, because they figured that some of the immigrant kids were meaning the flag of Germany or Italy when they said my flag. So now they want them to specify the American flag. That changes over time, especially after the Second World War, that you get the same symbol in American civil religion, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Now it's this one republic, which is like shining and beautiful. So it takes on connotations that it really didn't have since the only people in America that ever thought they were completely right in everything that they did and therefore justified in anything that they did really honestly (laughs) were some of the pilgrim settlers. That's where the phrase city on a hill is transposed from the Sermon on the Mount to John Winthrop's estimation of what America was. It's noticeable that that phrase city on a hill comes back after the Second World War, especially in people's patriotic piety, and especially in the figure of Ronald Reagan after Vietnam to make us feel like we are still a shining place. That's not an assertion Americans historically had about themselves outside of certain Puritans. It really is not. They might have believed they were justified in settling the continent or something, But the idea that they were simply better than other nations, per se, that they were good because they were Americans, is it's not only alien to the theology of the Puritans, to be fair to them, it's alien to most Americans' theology and conception of themselves over time. What I think is interesting about the nuclear weapons story is that most of the people involved are not Christians. Many are ethnically Jewish. Many just don't practice anything. Many are explicit communists, like the scientific head of the project, J. Robert Oppenheimer, his brother who's involved in the program is was a member of the Communist Party USA. So they're not Christian, but the idea that you are pure or virtuous or that your country is pure or virtuous really gets, I think, detached from Christianity pretty clearly in and after the Second World War. Because now our goodness doesn't really have to do with God's favor or providence. It has to do with what we were able to do. Hmm. Yeah, right. So as opposed to uh, we are virtuous because of Christ, who is risen, declares us good, saves us from sin, regenerates us, all that good stuff. It's we stop the Nazis Mm -hmm. because we're inherently better than they are in every single way from we're nicer to we're smarter. Yeah. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we are rightly dubbed God's people to, to reign over the world in a coming age. And um, well, uh, the cold war is still going on, right? <laughs> the cold war is still going on in the New York times and the Washington post, but I'm not contending it's still going on, but I will contend that it was already going on in the 1930s. 
And one of the decisive things, if you look at this as a continuous process with the Cold War predating combat in World War II, and I know that usually people go, you know, First World War, 20s, Great Depression, World War II, Cold War. My contention is that we always have an existential problem with a continent-wide communist state in the Soviet Union. The decision that is made, however, first by the Wilson administration and then by American industry, especially the Ford Motor Company, and then by the Roosevelt administration in formally recognizing the Soviet Union, is that we were at peace with the Soviet Union, or we decided that the war would be very minimal and the relationship would be relatively warm until the Truman administration. So the Cold War, I think, exists by virtue of the Soviet Union's existence. There is an inherent tension there. I mean, the Cold War is just another version of great power politics such as Europe has always had. It's just that once there was another continent-wide power in the Soviet Union, we finally found somebody who was a match, a real opponent for us. And the, the problem there is that the Soviets never warm up to us the way we try to warm up to them because the Soviet Union does not possess a lot of secretive, convinced Christians or secretive, convinced small R Republicans or small D Democrats in their midst. We, however, as is revealed eventually by the opening of various archives after the fall of the Soviet Union in both Russia and the United States, we, however, always have <laughs> communists <laughs> in our government and in high-level programs like the Manhattan Project. So whereas we always have spies, they do not. The Soviet Union will, in fact, need those spies within both British and American research programs, as well as later on German research programs, to really to exist, to have the kinds of nuclear weapon success that they will in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Without those thefts, especially via the man I mentioned earlier, Klaus Fuchs, they really could not have succeeded in the way that they did and would have remained at a obviously significant disadvantage relative to the United States. But if you want some kind of evidence that the Cold War exists before the end of the Second World War, you would simply look at the way that the Soviets talked about both nuclear weapons research and also what they were doing as their troops began to move westward, breaking out of being under siege by Germany and instead moving to trying to conquer Germany, they did not think of us as friends. We just temporarily were not explicitly enemies. Right. The enemy of my enemy is my ally in this fight. Right. In yeah. this fight. So, um, I mean, uh, Cold War shifting uh Shifting enemies, shifting nostalgia. I mean, you mentioned a, a, a nostalgia, shifting focus. You yeah. mentioned an existential problem with a continent-wide power whom we are ostensibly at peace with. And, um, I mean, China definitely has fit that bill yeah. for the last decade or so. And the Chinese are, 
hostile to us, I think pretty blatantly hostile to us in a way that we are only now beginning to reciprocate. And it is a relatively rare instance of bipartisanship in the United States that both Republicans and Democrats seem to today to recognize China as a competitor, a hostile competitor to the United States. It is, however, honestly, a very similar situation to the Soviet Union in that their industrial base would not exist without both our encouragement and our markets in which to, you know, vend their products. Right. Without us, they do not exist economically in anything like the position that they do. And therefore, also militarily and, and financially, and I, so I've forth. I've heard that a lot of the technological breakthroughs in China also are borrowed, to use the term. <laughs> they are borrowed, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the Soviets did that with atomic weaponry, but honestly, had enough of their own industrial base that they didn't. They did not do that to us uh, generally, nearly in the way that the Chinese have. I think that one thing to consider here about history generally is that it is not. It is not the kind of morality play that people imagine it to be. You you can find in almost any historian of longstanding going way back into the Greeks and Romans that moral lessons should be drawn from history. It is it is a a treasury of lessons about life and power and how to conduct oneself and what destroys a nation, what destroys an individual, etc. But it is not the kind of cartoonish morality play or clear-cut, obvious morality play that people generally receive. I, I don't actually find that odd that people have their ideas of German characteristics from movies or the threat of the Chinese from, you know, assertions and alarmed voices on cable news. I I, I don't think that's strange because if you look at history, most people have subsisted on what are essentially fairy stories. They were explicitly called morality plays in the Middle Ages. I just don't think we're as honest or open about it. But they subsist on fairy stories about about much of life. And so I, I'm not, I, I have no hope that, and I'm not sad that I have no hope, but I have no hope that people are going to get something more complex. I wish that the people in charge of us or, you know, carrying the nuclear football around for us or whoever they may be would not themselves. And I hope they do not subsist on fairy stories because a fairy story would say we won the second world war because captain America punched Hitler, or we're going to beat the Chinese because, you know, free and open societies are always victorious over closed and, uh, surveilled societies. And it it's not just that we have begun to imitate the Chinese in our addiction to surveillance. It's also that we will not defeat them or survive them or whatever the objective may be by virtue of being morally superior to them. As far as the Cold War goes, I think this is the beauty of the approach that we take throughout much of the Cold War, which is to respect the Soviets as an opponent and to react to them as if they are also in some measure rational human beings, rather than cartoonishly portraying them as absurdly evil because they believe in the redistribution of assets and control by public entities or something. 
we actually begin to behave as if they are also human beings with some of the same passions and addictions and and loves and desires that we have, and then to respond to them on that basis. Whenever we think about people cartoonishly, it generally leaves us unprepared for life. And with that, you got to wonder if the cartoons are all written and put together by demons. Listen to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.